Coming up on today's show, with new rules around borrowing money to buy a home, could we see people start to fudge the numbers a little more? The world economy is poised to take off. We've been told it a million times. Is it too much, too fast? Basically, we're kind of running out of everything. And what's going on with COVID in Alberta and vaccinations? And where do we go in terms of vaccination passports? We'll have some of your calls today. I wanted to have a chat about um, some new federal rules that mean borrowing money for a mortgage is going to be harder than it was before. Um, And there's some concern that could lead to an increase in mortgage fraud. You know, people trying to fudge the numbers a little bit to try and qualify for a little more. Uh, Leah Zlatkin is an expert with lowestrates.ca and a principal broker at Bright Mortgage. And she phones, uh, she joins us now to chat about this. Um, did Did I get the name right, Leah? Yeah, you did. Okay, it's good. a okay. hard one to pronounce, but thank you. Uh, okay, so let's talk about this here. First of all, the changes. What exactly are the changes in terms of borrowing to buy a home in Canada? What are the new rules? Yeah, so as of June 1st, we're likely to see that OSFI, which is the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions in Canada, is going to be raising the qualifying rate from 4.79% to 5.25% for people buying uninsurable homes. So in layman's terms, what this means is that for somebody purchasing a home over $1 million with 20% down, there's going to be about a 5% difference in the affordability that they would have had before mm-hmm. compared to now. So they'll qualify for 5% less mortgage dollars. So what they're saying basically is, okay, we don't care if you can handle the payments based on what the interest rates are now. We want to know if you can handle them if interest rates go up to, as you said, that 5 point whatever, right? Correct, exactly. And so, you know, this isn't going to have a huge impact, but in cases where people are really close to that borderline, we're probably going to start to see a little bit more of this, you know, people believing that they are fudging their numbers in their own benefit. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they might try and stretch themselves a little further um, than the truth. And in those situations, you know, this can be really problematic. Um, And so this is just something that we're probably going to start to see as, as time moves on here. So what you're talking about here is basically people going to the bank and saying they earn a little more than they do so they can qualify for a little more than possibly they're allowed to. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, Equifax just recently released um, a survey that was talking about how how truthful people are on loan applications <laughs> or credit applications. And they actually determined that, you know, the national average is about 7% of people um, have not been previous previously truthful on credit or loan applications. But millennials as a group actually are at 14% for this. And so as millennials move into this housing market and as millennials are the ones who are most dramatically impacted because they're going to be those first-time homebuyers, they're going to be the entrance to the market, that raises a little bit of a red flag within the broker community or within the banking community that we need to be on the lookout for this kind of fraud. Yeah, how do you do that? I mean, I remember when I applied for a mortgage, you know, they check with your employer and all kinds of things. So it's not like you can just put whatever you want down there. Aren't there some checks in place already? Yeah, of course. So there's lots of checks and balances, and I won't speak to specifically what those are because as an industry, we're usually very guarded around how we detect fraud because we want to continue to be able to detect fraud. 
Um, but definitely, you know, as a broker myself, when I talk to an applicant, um, I try and emphasize, oh, okay, you make this much per year. And I'll ask very specific questions to try and narrow that down. Then I've got my underwriter on my side of things who actually goes through files as well. And then from the lender side of things, you know, there's the underwriter on the lender side of things. And we do final checks and balances as well, sometimes with insurers. So there's about four or five different you know, levels of checking for fraud, Mm -hmm. but there's always, you know, those few cases where people try and slip through the cracks and they get caught. Um, And if they get caught on the broker side of things, so if they get caught by me or by my underwriter, you know, we usually try and have a conversation with somebody to understand whether it was a misunderstanding. Um, But if you get caught on the lender side of things, that can dramatically impact you. That can prevent you from being able to get a mortgage at all. Um, So, you know, as... Yeah, as as Canadians start start having these situations arise where they need to qualify for just a little bit more or they're just on the cusp of being able to get that dream home or that first home, um, Canadians need to be really careful because, you know, something that might seem harmless right now could make it really difficult for you to get a mortgage later on. Interesting. So there are, that could really set you back in that way. But I mean, there's also consequences in terms of you could end up in over your head. I mean, these rules are in place for a reason, right? Yeah, 100%. And so, you know, most people think about it this way. Okay, well, my mortgage rate today is going to be 1.3%. What does it matter if the Prime Bank of Canada raises interest rates a little bit? You know, still at most, I'm going to be paying 2%. That's way off of that 5.25% that they're going to qualify me at. So I'm fine. Mm -hmm. But when you take into account the fact that maybe, you know, right now you're buying a home, and you don't have a car, but you're buying a home in the suburbs and all of a sudden you might need a car. You've got now a lease payment as well. Um, you know, maybe your spouse or your partner also has a new lease payment. Now you've got two lease payments. You know, you're maybe putting the kids in school or doing something else. Um, and then, you know, you've got new hydro bills and things sort of build up. And so all of a sudden somebody loses a job or gets some hours cut back and things can get tight, especially if rates are going up at the same time. So for a lot of these Canadians, these these sort of checks and balances are put in place to make sure that we can all continue paying our mortgages and so that nobody has deferral situations. And uh, when we talk about interest rates, they're, they're not going any lower. They can't go any lower. The only way they can go is up, right? <laughs> you never know. <laughs> um, well, you know, there's a lot of speculation in the market and Bank of Canada actually um, has rectified a few statements that they made earlier in the year. So originally they were saying that they weren't going to be raising the Bank of Canada prime rate until at least 2023. And now they're saying that we're on a better track to economic recovery. So they might be increasing rates as early as end of 2022. So Q4 of 2022. Okay. So we could see those interest rates going up on the variable side of things. From a fixed rate perspective, though, we have seen a slow and steady gradual increase compared to where we were at about three, four months ago. So three, four months ago, rates were about 0.4% lower than they are right now. So we have already started seeing an increase in fixed rates and variable rates. Many expect that they're going to continue going up, including myself. Right. Okay. So now just to clarify, because some listeners are asking, who does this apply to? It's not everybody applying for a mortgage, right? It's, as you said, uh, homes that are mortgages that are uninsurable, basically. Yeah, so this is uninsurable mortgages. So to define that for everyone, what an uninsurable mortgage is, is when you're purchasing a home over a million dollars 
or when you're doing a refinance of your home. And that's a situation where a lot of people need to be very careful and where we're probably going to start to see some of that number fudging as well. So what a refinance is, is that you live in an existing home and maybe, you know, you guys have over time, the property has increased in value Mm -hmm. and you want to take a little bit of money out because maybe you want to try and put a down payment on a condo or you want to pay for a graduation or a wedding or something like that, or maybe even renovations. So you decide you're going to take a little bit of extra equity out of the home. Okay. So when you try and do that, when you try and re-qualify to take out some additional equity from the home, then you have to go through this stress test process again. Gotcha. And you're considered to be uninsurable. So in that particular situation, especially amongst Canadians who are, you know, close to retirement or who have already retired, there's a situation where their income might not be the same as when they originally qualified for their mortgage. Sure. Makes perfect sense. Thanks so much for the uh, clarity around this, Leah. Appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. It was great chatting with you today. We'll do it again. Thanks very much. That is Leah Zlatkin uh, with uh, LowestRates.ca and a principal broker at Bright Morgan. Well, we don't know when the recovery will start. Maybe it's already started in some ways. It looks like it may have, but uh, what is it going to mean for us? We keep hearing about great things for the economy and for business and things like that. And Maybe it's too much of a good thing. Can there ever be too much of a good thing? Well, we've been told to expect this roaring comeback as we emerge from the darkness of the pandemic months and even years. The economy is predicted to be ready to roar, not just in Canada, everywhere. And already, there's every reason to believe it could all be happening too fast. Too much too fast, and we could run into some problems here. Zach Rogers is one of the people behind something called the Logistics Managers Index, which uh, historically is very, very accurate, and it's pointing out some real cause for concern around this topic. Uh, Zach, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Okay, let's just define what we're talking about here. First of all, the Logistics Managers Index. Uh, how do you put it together, and what is it? Sure. So uh, every month, a team of uh, professors from other supply chain departments uh, around the U.S. and I send a survey out to a couple hundred um, director level and above, so people who will have kind of a full picture of the supply chain, uh, director level and above uh, supply chain folks, and we just ask them a simple question. Things like transportation prices, inventory capacity, warehousing utilization, are they going up? Are they staying the same? or are they going down? And essentially, uh, when we average all these answers together, if we get a number over 50, that means we're seeing growth. If we get a number below 50, that means we're seeing contraction, and and the further below, further above it goes, the greater those those levels are. So this month, um, we got a a score of 74.5 for the overall index, which is the second highest reading in the history of, of the index. We've been doing it for about five years, mm-hmm. and it goes to exactly what you were just saying in your introduction. We're, we're really starting to open up, and, <laughs> and that demand is showing tightness in other parts of the economy because of how fast we're, we're sort of turning everything back on. Yeah, we're sort of taking off like a rocket here. Now, uh, historically, this market index, has, it's been extremely accurate, right? Yes. Yes, sir. Yep. Uh, it, it tracks very well um, with almost any, uh, any economic indicator you like. Yeah. Usually, if we have, you know, increases in the LMI in April, that means we're going to see an increase in things like retail sales, Dow Jones Index, 
in in May. So it's a pretty good predictor of of economic activity. Okay, so let's take a closer look at exactly what you're seeing in your latest index. Um, where where are you seeing some of the issues? What are you finding in in your survey of these um, these industry heads? So essentially, what we're seeing is that capacity is very very tight right now. Okay, if you think about the way supply chains are constructed. They're put together so that they don't have an ounce of fat on them. You don't want to have trucks or warehouses or any sort of capital equipment like that that's just sitting there not being used. So going into the pandemic, we already had some tightness with capacity, but it's a tightness that's that's built in. You want to be having just enough. Um, but when the pandemic happened, a couple things a couple things occurred. One a lot of warehouses were really slammed with, with inventory. And the reason for this is because we had all these sales sort of ready to go in the spring or the summer, and then all the stores closed down. So there was a lot of inventory already kind of sitting there. And then what has happened uh, after that is we've sort of had the consumers speed back up. And mm-hmm. this really happened, uh, this really started happening, honestly, at the end of last summer. Um, and, and it's really because of the way consumer spending came back that we're seeing so much tightness. You know, average year-over-year growth for e-commerce is 15%. Right. Last year, because all the stores were closed, it was up 45%. Okay. And so if you think about the way e-commerce works, you have to have more trucks because it's not you and I driving to the stores. The trucks, you know, yep. or vans coming to our house. Plus, because now it's so much about fast delivery, everyone's looking for warehouses that are, you know, in the suburbs of Calgary or, or Edmonton or, you know, something like that. It's not when – I worked, uh, when I worked in warehouses, it was out in the middle of the desert. Yeah, exactly. Now it's, you know, really close to people. And so there's a, a cap on how much space you can have. And so essentially, you need more warehouses, you need more trucks, and the demand for e-commerce, which is very – you know, logistic capital heavy, skipped forward three years in about six months. And so that really put us in a hole in terms of available capacity of things like trucks, warehouses, or just general shelf space. And that's really slowed down how quickly we can move everything around. And that's where consumers are going to start, uh, you know, seeing this affect them personally. And it's kind of interesting in reading over uh, some of the work that you're doing. It's not, I mean, like we're, we're talking here about shipping and about e-commerce and things like that, but mm-hmm. it's not like those are the only two sectors, right? I mean, this goes back right, right. raw materials right through the entire supply chain. Absolutely. Absolutely. And in the problem with the tightness, especially for raw materials, is that raw materials aren't necessarily the most attractive things for uh, for truckers to be moving around. So if you look at something called the tender rejection rate, uh, and a tender is like a, a load that some company says, "Hey, I want you know to I'm here's my tender. I want this load to go on a truck from point A to point B." Right now, the rejection rate for those loads for those tenders is 25 percent. So essentially, of every four loads that companies have to ship, yeah, one of those isn't going to get on a truck because there's just not enough capacity. And so for something like raw materials, like take lumber, which has been a, a big issue yes. in, in the U.S. Uh, because of issues with construction, um, if I'm a trucking company and I have a choice, well, I can either ship some high-margin electronics or lumber, I'm going to go with the electronics every single time. 
And so that sort of thing, the raw materials are really slow um, to be moved around because of the trucking issue. And then on top of that, because we're having this spike in demand, you know, it's, it's not like we just had no demand for products and then demand is going to go back to normal. Demand is higher right now because we're sort of, you know, making up for that deficit. Yeah, And it's just like I said earlier, where you don't have a lot of extra trucks sitting around. Right, There's not a lot of extra factory capacity sitting around. It's why it took us so long to catch up on, like, toilet paper uh, last spring, because toilet paper factories are designed to be operating at basically 100% efficiency all the time. And so now we're asking these raw material folks to say, hey, can you give us 115% or 120%? And they just don't have that flex capacity. Now, you're talking about lumber in the United States, exact same situation up here in Canada. And that's an important thing to point out. When you take a look at this this survey that you're doing, you're not talking about, I mean, this is, this is a global situation. Everybody's in the same boat yeah. right now, right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's an international uh, issue. And, you know, if you look at something like the ports, look at the Port of Los Angeles right now. Um, they're somewhere around you know, 180% more busy than they were the same week last year. And they're setting a record every month uh, in the port of LA for things coming in. Yeah. And so what that's doing is it's driving up the price of containers, you know, the, just the big metal shipping container. Right. That's actually one of the biggest constraints on the economy right now. Those are up hundred, you know, 500% <laughs> from where they were this same time, uh, you know, like even a couple months ago. And so if we, you know, the, the economy is so interconnected globally, you're absolutely right. We're so interconnected globally. And if we can't move things around, we really see these big price crunches. And it's going to be a while for us to catch up because in many ways, uh, the sort of behavior, um, or sort of the, uh, uh, the, the constraints are encouraging bad behavior. So, you know, if, if the price of containers is up so high, well, what's happening? Well, ships are, you know, say, coming to the U.S. or to Canada from Asia, and instead of waiting to be fully reloaded, they're just turning around and maybe going back with 90% of the containers that they came over with the first time. Well, what does that do? That cuts the... Um, you know, supply of containers in, yeah. in Asia and increases the price even more. Um, but if you're the ship captains, you're graded on how fast you can turn these things around. So maybe you don't care about that. And so there's all these, these issues where people are now kind of cutting corners internationally that's actually making the problem uh, a little worse. Now, you mentioned it's going to take us some time to catch up. How much time? I mean, yeah. this won't be a permanent condition we're going through, right? No, absolutely not. Um, I will say that, that companies are slow to adjust to this. You know, you imagine if you're a, a, you know, an ocean carrier um, and this is maybe some, you know, a little bit of a bubble, you may not want to invest in a, a whole fleet of new ships right now. I think for a lot of the, the carriers, they're looking at this as almost like, well, am I buying the stock when it's at the most valuable it's ever been? Right. You, know, you don't want to buy at the top of the market. Yeah. You want to buy at the bottom. And so I think there's some hesitancy there. Now, one of the things we do uh, every month is we ask, okay, so in the next 12 months, where do we see this going? And, and we've got some really interesting numbers uh, this, this month. So in terms of additional capacity that will come online, for warehousing, our number was 53, which shows, okay, we're, we're going to have some warehouses come online. Yeah. A pretty normal very number. Mild, 
Sorry, what? A pretty normal number. Not, not Nothing too extraordinary there, right? Right. That's, yeah, it's a very mild level of growth. Trucks was actually a 44, oh. indicating that, yes, we will be building trucks, but we're not going to be able to, to build them quickly enough to keep up with, uh, to keep up with the increase in demand, um, partly because, actually, of, of the semiconductor shortage. Yes. You know, right now we have record levels of back orders for Class A trucks, and we just can't fill them because we don't have the semiconductors for them. But so if you if you put those together, okay, well, we'll have some moderate level of capacity come back. Well, for prices, it's an 86 for transportation price for the next year, 84 uh, for warehousing, and I think an 85 for inventory costs. And so we're just not going to be able to bring enough supply back in terms of logistics capacity to meet demand for at least the next 12 months. Oh, boy. Um, yeah, so it's 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 a good time actually to be a, a trucking company probably, um, but yeah, so it's it's going to be at least through the rest of this year and maybe through the beginning of of twenty twenty two that we're going to continue to struggle according to uh, according to our respondent base and they've they've usually been pretty pretty spot on yeah uh, that we're going to continue to struggle um, with supply catching up to demand in terms of uh, logistics capacity. All right. Fascinating discussion. Thanks so much, Zach. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, we'll get an update down the road, too. Thank you very much. That is Zach Rogers, who is an assistant professor of supply chain management at Colorado State University's College of Business, and he's one of the guys behind this index that sort of maps out where we are and where we might be going. interesting news coming out today that sort of fits into the discussion that we are having. European Union countries agreed today to ease COVID-19 travel restrictions on non-EU visitors ahead of the summer tourist season, a move that could open the block store to Britons and vaccinated Americans. Um, the 27 countries approved a European Commission proposal to loosen the criteria to determine safe countries to let in fully vaccinated tourists from elsewhere. So, you know, whether you like it or not, or you think it's fair or not, or you think it's against your rights or not, it's happening. You know, we talked about Lollapalooza, the biggest, one of the basic music festivals in the world, uh, announcing they're going ahead this summer. And if you want to go, you've got to have proof of vaccination or a negative test. So, I mean, we're going to see more and more of it. That's just sort of the environment that we're living now. Let's go to Debbie now. Hi there, Debbie. How are you? Uh, Yes. Good morning, Shay. Uh, I'm fine. Thank you. I had a a question or just a uh, remark. Mm-hmm. I got a shot at um I phoned 811. Yep. I live in Calgary or actually Iracana, so I'm not sure why I'm listening to Chad, but anyway, <laughs> no worries. Um I phoned 811. They said go to Genesis Center in the northeast to okay. get your shot. Yep. Good enough. I got this big ass piece of paper. Excuse my French. I'm sorry. All right. And Everyone that goes to a pharmacy and just goes and says, hey, at PharmaSave or Shoppers, yep. you get a little card. Yeah. Do not laminate because you may need something else. Now, my husband got his shot in Montana. He drives long haul. Mm-hmm. He got a card. It took them 15 seconds to fill it out. So people that actually phone in and to 811 do not get a card. Which is kind of unusual, and I phoned Urgent Care in Airdrie, and they, yeah. they said, well, because we're AHS. Um, you okay, can access it so online and print it off, right? You can. That's what they're telling you? No, 
No, no. They're saying that if you, if AHS, which I phoned, 811 is our number, if you phone that and you go into an AHS authorized, um, like a Genesis Center mm-hmm. in Calgary, you do not get a card. But if you just walk into a pharmacy, yeah, yeah. you get a card. I don't understand. Because you're saying now we would, and we, I agree, okay, you would need something to say that you have got your shot. But are you supposed to laminate an 8 by 11 yeah. and walk around with that? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't make sense. Good but. question. Yeah, I, I, I don't know, Debbie. I don't know how this will work out. And I don't know that you're gonna, anybody can ask you to produce anything. Uh, I don't know exactly how. That's what I'm saying. That's, that's going to be the sticking point for all of this, right, is how you try and enforce this and make sure that people that are entering your business are, in fact, vaccinated. Let's check in with William. Hi, William. Hey, buddy. Congrats on the job. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Um, yeah, I got my shot. I got my little, uh, I went to a co-op pharmacy and, uh, yeah, I got my piece of paper. It's folded up. It's in my wallet. Yeah. Okay. If anybody does ask me, I just got to just pull it out and say, yes, I got my first shot. Yep. And, uh, I, I don't understand th- this whole dilemma of people not wanting to get the vaccine. To me, it doesn't make any sense. Me neither. I personally. It, 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 I think it would only make sense if, if someone they know or, you know, a family member gets it. And then get seriously ill or potentially, you know, passes away. Yeah, I mean, <sighs> then it becomes then it becomes reality, right? It becomes real because it's happened to them, and it's happened to me. It yeah. happened to my mom. And they're very right in 2020 when we you know we were kicking cans around and trying to figure out where were we, whether we we're going to shut the borders down, keep the planes on the ground. I mean, for me, it's all about the 14 days that we didn't do anything. Right. Yeah. Exactly. We shut everything down for fourteen days. We would have lost less money doing the fourteen-day shutdown. Yes. Than what we've lost so far. No, I know. We, uh, yeah. Hindsight's twenty twenty. We can take a look at other jurisdictions that did things differently and came out farther ahead than we did. Let's check in with Nick. Hi, Nick. Hey. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. So, the problem I have with all this talk is maybe I've read too much history, but discrimination is wrong we've always said mm-hmm. um and now if we had this conversation two years ago that we we're going to ban certain people for medical reasons or non-medical reasons to go into a store go into a restaurant go into a concert everyone would have been up in arms but now we're going to basically discriminate against people uh if they have mask exemptions yeah highly contagious pandemic will do that choose not to Sorry, a highly contagious pandemic will change the way we think about who we, uh, you know, get into proximity of. Well, again, so that's one thing. There's lots of medical people that say it's not whatever. You could, you have real world examples of Sweden, Texas, Florida, you know, South yeah, Dakota. Okay. So, leave it, so leaving that part aside, let's just talk about the discriminate discrimination because, I mean, if you go historically, there were great many medical experts who declared that. Uh, smallpox, syphilis, and typhus were being spread. And this was Germany in the 1930s where they were being spread by the Jewish people. So, I mean, we're, you know, we, we supposedly moved away from discrimination, but now we're going to discriminate and ban people That's a for leap. another medical we're, reason. It's, it's now all of a sudden... We're not banning any particular group of people. We're not banning any particular group of people. We're saying all people. I mean... You're talking about apples and oranges there. Let's go to Mike. Hello, Mike. No, Mike. Hello. Hey, we got Hello, you there. You there. Hi. Yeah. So I just wanted to 
emphasize the informed consent. So when they listen to you on the radio, people should get informed. Okay. The last caller I just want to mention, the top four manufacturing vaccine companies are convicted felons. Johnson & Johnson was selling baby powder with asbestos in it knowingly yes, were. So, while so, parents so, rubbed that okay, on their so children. You're telling people, I, I got six calls I want to get through, and we've had this discussion before. Your point is you don't like the vaccines. Can we just wrap it up? Can we just say the okay, vaccines so are, are dangerous? The other, the other, the other point no, just, I'll make I, 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 yeah. is Bill Gates is close friends, was close friends with Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah, you know what? We, now, we know that. How do you that. feel about taking a vaccine that was developed by a guy that's best friends with Jeffrey Epstein? So don't take it, Mike. No one cares. Let's go to Ian. Hi, Ian. How are you? Good. Thank you for taking my call. Um, two quick things, more questions slash point. Biggest concern I have with the vaccines is that we do not know the long-term effects. And to me, I don't know about giving it to children. Because children, basically, this isn't really affecting them. Like, it's very low. Rate yeah, no, I, that's a fair point. And that's what I get scared of, is that there have been other things rolled out where they have had side effects long term. So, and then I've talked to a lot of doctors, read lots of articles, and they're saying the vaccine, you could still be, as, you could still spread it. Not as long because you'll fight it off quicker and it'll exit your body, but you could still spread it. So why are they pushing to give kids vaccines when we don't know the long term effects? And... You know, I mean, they're still going to spread it anyway. Maybe not as long. Like, what yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, there's some discussion around that. I think basically what it is is you want to break the chains of transmission. So the more people you have who are vaccinated, the less likely they are to spread it, and on it goes that way. Okay, I'm going to get one more in here before we have to go. Let's go to John. Now. Hi, John. Yeah, the the point I want to make, and if you're going to be uh, demand passports for COVID to be consistent, uh, other health issues should be available and considered as well. So. Example, STT, an STD passport for access into establishment. What, are you, you going to go to the Safeway and have sex with like somebody? Why on earth would you need an STD passport? Well, hey, you know, you could get it if you, if you, if you link up with somebody, it's, you, you can pass it on. So that's the ridiculousness of a passport. That's the that's ridiculous the of your point. If I'm walking through a Safeway and somebody has COVID, they can possibly give it to me. If they have an STD, my chances of getting it really, really, really low, John. Very, very low. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.